0: Hello and welcome to the Try Talking Sport podcast hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast or simply have an interest in sport, you have come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation and as always a little bit of entertainment. Another month of 2021 has started, hello June. And for the first time since March of last year when the pandemic hit, I've got a very real pep in my step. And my appetite for adventure is definitely growing. I really can't wait to pack up and go somewhere, anywhere. Bike, swim and run gear are going to be ready for road at the drop of a hat this summer. So hit me up with the places I should go in Ireland for the moment where adventure across swim, bike and run awaits. I know we still need to be careful and mindful of the situation with COVID as it continues to infiltrate and affect our lives in the simplest and grandest of ways. But the light of hope is burning bright on the horizon and I really can't wait to get out and about. It may take a while, to get used to getting dressed up in something other than my luxury loungewear, i.e. my tracksuit, and dry robe to go out-out for dinner of an evening after enjoying chips on the beach most weekends since March. But I'm up for the challenge, and this is one I most definitely will excel at. Speaking of challenges, did you see the runninghome.ie challenge encouraging Irish people living abroad to virtually run the distance back to Ireland in support of both Focus Ireland and the Peter Macfairy Trust? You can even win the price of return flights to Ireland as part of the campaign. But be sure to buy your tickets before June the 8th. You can check it out on runninghome.ie or on tritalkysport.com. Now, if you tuned into our Facebook live shows back in March, you will have met Anna Deegan from Athai Triathlon Club who is taking on a 555k challenge this summer, swimming, cycling and running around Mayo over five days. She will cycle 500k over three days, Complete a 5 kilometer swim from Runa Pier to Clare Island on day 4 and complete a 50k ultramarathon around Clare Island on day 5. She's taking on the challenge to support both Cycle Against Suicide and St Patrick's School on Clare Island. You can find out more about her challenge on the Tritalking Sport Facebook page. Go, 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 Anna. Well done on getting this far already. For this episode, I was delighted to chat with ultra runner Keith Russell. It's very appropriate that he is the guest on the episode released on Global Running Day 2021. Winner of the last one standing race in Florida Manor County Down last month, he broke Irish, UK and European records in this type of race by completing 425.5 kilometres in 63 hours. Yes, you heard that correctly. 425.5 kilometres in 63 hours. Each lap of 6.7 kilometres has to be completed within an hour before the next one starts. The race continues until there is one person left on the start line. Keith was the last one standing at this year's event taking victory after a gruelling race. Keith's running journey started in 2016 with his daughter Alana running the Dublin Marathon with her in 2017, capturing the hearts of the nation as they completed the event together with Keith pushing Alana in her chair over the 26.2 mile distance. Sadly, Alana passed away just a few weeks later, but Keith continues to run in her honour and her memory. He embraced running with Alana and now has pushed beyond what he ever thought possible by taking on some mammoth ultra-running events. It wasn't an easy road to running success for Keith. In fact, he hit rock bottom after Alana passed away, before he began to pick up the pieces of his life again and realised that he had a reason to not only survive but to thrive. Running is his recovery and his therapy on a road that has hit some heartbreaking obstacles and challenges. But Keith is not afraid of these obstacles he now faces as a runner. In fact, he embraces them. The bigger and tougher, the better for the man from Navin, who was a participant in RTE's Special Forces Ultimate Hell Week in 2019. He has his eyes set on success at the Marathon de Sable in the future and... Biggs Backyard Last One Standing World Final in Tennessee this October. Just don't ask him to get back on a rowing machine anytime soon. Enjoy the show. Keith Russell, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I am delighted to finally be in your presence and have you on the show on this wonderful sunny day.
1: Thanks very much for asking me to come on, Joanne. (laughs) Very privileged.
0: (laughs) Now, I know I said it's sunny, but it's sunny in Galway. I don't think you're having as good a day as we are.
1: No, we're the opposite side of the country. It's it's raining today. Now it was sunny yesterday, so we're probably getting your bad weather over this side now.
0: Keith, for my listeners who may not be aware of of who you are, tell us a little bit about your journey in sport and how you've come to be an Irish, UK, and European record holder.
1: I'm just waiting for someone else to come on when you say something like that. <laughs> I would have been I would have been very sporty growing up. So I would have been into football, Gaelic football, hurling, played golf. Like at a very young age, I used to go out with my dad about half six in the morning on a Saturday morning and I'd go out playing the first eighteen holes and they when they're starting after me. Yeah, sport was a, a very big part of my life and I finished playing football then when I was thirty years of age. I captained the Junior C Championship to a championship title, and that was that was my last game. That was my last hurrah, as they say. Then in 2016, when I was about 33, I got into running. Um, so I basically started running with my daughter, Alana. She's a spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy. We ran Dublin City Marathon in 2017, and my t- attention sort of turned to ultra running, a longer distance. And yeah... Just became an Ireland, UK and European champion last one standing there last week.
0: So before we go back to talk about Alana and about how she was the catalyst for you to get running and and to start this journey, talk to me about what this event is. The last one standing Florida Manor Backyard Ultra 425.5 kilometres in 63 hours. I mean, what is that all about?
1: Yeah, it, it was, to be honest, it was one I had on my radar for last year, but I was in the process of training for Martin La So with the timing of it, it just wasn't right at last year for me to do it. Um, now obviously Martin Lassab was postponed then it was postponed again last September and so what I did was I, I deferred my entry for Martin Assab till March of next year and that was really just to avoid another postponement and another training block because it's it's ruthless training for it you know with intense heat and stuff like that. so yeah I I seen this one and it was again it was one I wanted to do so I I sort of utilized and, and adapted my training for this. I didn't think it was ever going to go for as long as that. To be honest, um, I was thinking forty-eight hours and just do every hour after that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 just mind blowing <laughs> the, the, the distance that it did go and and uh, the hours that we had to run. Like
0: when you break those kilometers down, it's like um, into miles. It works yeah. out at something like two hundred and sixty point two miles. So you basically ran ten marathons in sixty-three hours.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's mad when you say it like that. Yeah. It's, so it was 422 kilometers, which is 262 miles, which equates to 10 marathons in 63 hours. Yeah. But like, you know, your game plan has to be just keep showing up at the start line. So it was 6.7 kilometers every hour. You could run it in 40 minutes. You could run it in 50 minutes. That was completely up to you. You had 20 minutes rest or 10 minutes rest before you had to be at the start line to go again. And once there was people going, the race kept going. Once you were the last person, you'd done one last lap on your own, and that was it. That was the race over. But there was four of us for the last 20 hours. At 100 miles, which is 24 hours, there was 39, which is one of the most, the second most ever in in something like this. How
0: many people started the race, Keith?
1: Um, I think it was about 150, roughly, that started it. But with the weather being so nice... Because it was May, you always had that feeling that I had potential to go far and go long, and um, because the one previous year was in Castle Ward and the weather was it was horrendous, the conditions was just brutal. So that went for forty-three hours with the weather the way it was. It was it always had the potential to go long, and the Irish record at the time was forty-nine hours. So I was expecting it to go for forty-eight and then just walk hour by hour after that, as I said, like, but. It came to the point where I was breaking it up into stretches. So at night, so you had a head torch and you were going through, through the forest and stuff like that. Your mind, like as the time went on, your mind starts to try and go wayward, start to play tricks on you, stuff like this. So I think you had to be aware of that happening and sort of bring yourself back and remind yourself where you are, what you're doing, why you're doing it had to get back around to the finish line again, to get... You know that much-needed 10-minute break before you had to be at the start line to go again. I was breaking it down basically into I knew when I hit a stretch that at 30 minutes or 31 minutes, I would have been two or three minutes through that, and then when I hit the next stretch at 34 or 35 minutes, I was going to be out the other side at 38. So during the night when I got halfway through and I didn't realize roughly where I was, once I knew what time it was, I knew when, when I was going to be hitting hitting the end of that stretch. It's all these little tricks that you sort of gained, you know, just to to keep you occupied.
0: You talked there about potentially aiming for 48 hours and taking it every hour after that. How do you prepare physically and mentally to keep going for 48 hours?
1: (laughs) Good question. Um, Well, I know, like, we we sort of, like, my coach is in Dubai, Marcus Smith. um, So he sort of started coaching me there for the last, I think it's about two years now we're together. And that was our first ultra race because we'd been preparing for Martin the that was cancelled. I was actually preparing to run for the 24 hour in Victoria Park in Belfast. Um, and that was also postponed. So this one wasn't too far away from it. It was a matter of, right, we get on this one. But it was, I think it was identifying the darkest hours um, that affects me and working on that and training in that, you know. So it's basically building that ultra mindset um and working through like anybody can run during the day at you know 12 o'clock when the sun is shining it's running at two and three in the morning when my body wants to just sleep after a day's work on a Friday go out that night your body wants to shut down but you have to keep going in the lashing terrain do you know what I mean and keep focused and do that for eight hours 10 hours at a time like
0: and when you'd go out on those training runs, would you have a support crew with you or would you do it based on a lap around your locality or your house to get used to that whole thing around running around in circles, basically?
1: Yeah, I am. the lads would come out, uh, say, before the start, they could come out for an hour. During the night, I'd say to them, look, I just want to be on my own. And I had a 10.5K route around my area. So I'd do that in 55 minutes and I'd be back at my, my van and I'd have food there so... I was also training to eat um, while I was moving. So I had a nutritionist, uh, Emma Brennan. I think she's down in your part of the country. And she was absolutely fantastic. It was one thing that I, I struggled with for a long, long time, especially in these ultra events, was food, what to eat, and how much I needed to eat. We worked on a few different strategies, mainly how many carbs I should be taking in on an hourly basis, how much is too much that would make me sick, and how much is not enough that you know you feel fatigued. So we got to a point where I was like a a play school child with nutrition, like it was ridiculous. And when she came in there, I was like, just like taking the stabilizers off the bike and waving me off. Well done, you know, this, this test here was a massive um, credit to her as well of how far she's brought me. But them nights of like standing at my van at five in the morning, having a cup of coffee and a bit of banana bread, you know, and the nicest piece of banana bread you'd ever have at that time with a cup of coffee. But they're the things you have to do like you tr- you can train your body you can train your mind you also have to train your, your 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 eating and your stomach because in something for that length of time like I was still eating at 50 odd hours in that race and I was surprised myself like but in all ultra events you're going to get sick at some stage and I got sick about 48 or 49 hours in you're just running up the road and you just get sick and you just keep going like that's that's just the way it is. <laughs> when
0: you're mentioning there about the food, I'm getting flashbacks to um the training we did for Race Around Ireland where we did a 48-hour simulation event. And I remember these to make us eat porridge getting out of bed, whether that was <laughs> one o'clock in the afternoon or yeah. two in the morning. And it's the same goes for the, the the lasagna or the um the spaghetti bolognese and the pasta. When you got off your bike, you had to eat whatever yeah. you were given. And it could have been eight o'clock in the morning getting off the bike or eight o'clock in the morning getting on the bike and you were eating the pasta or whatever it was they were giving us. So you really have to train your absolutely. body. And it's it's a very weird thing to do as well, Keith, because you have to come back from that and then get your body back into the regular mindset as well and be able to manage your day job.
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But it, when it's something you're so passionate about, you know, you do anything or what it takes to to be the best you can be, as you'd say, winning. But winning isn't coming first or second or third. Winning is doing your best and achieving what you want to achieve. So when when I'd mentioned winning, it's not about coming first, coming second or whatever. Like that's that's fair enough. Like that's an extra, an extra step up. But I think winning comes to, you know, doing yourself justice at the end of the day. That's that's what I'd class it as winning.
0: Now I know you're very determined and very committed because you wouldn't be where you are today without being committed. But are you stubborn and competitive oh, as well? Oh yeah,
1: oh yeah, definitely. Uh, all growing up, yeah, I would have been very, very, very competitive. Football, very competitive, you know. So yeah, I do have that element in me as well of stubbornness. And <laughs>
0: <laughs> how yeah. stubborn? Like on a scale of one to ten, how stubborn are you?
1: Oh Jesus! If you tell me I can't do something, I show you I can. That okay. that stubborn. Yeah. Or, if you tell me not to do something that's the first thing I'm doing <laughs> <laughs> were
0: you bold were you bold lad in school
1: yeah I would have been yeah I wasn't great in school I didn't like school I left school in third year after my junior self so left school I just could yeah I got a trade then I'm an electrician by trade but um yeah but I moved out of that now but um yeah I just couldn't, couldn't. Oh, it's like teachers telling you what to do it just it just wasn't me like accountants couldn't handle it I think my dad was in the school more times than I was <laughs>
0: I'd love to see your report card. <laughs>
1: no, you wouldn't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but wouldn't you love to go back to a teacher that might have been giving you grief all those years ago and saying this, that and the other about you and say, hey, look at me now. Look what I've done.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, the teachers I had, we had great crack with them. Do you know what I mean? And to be honest, I did meet a few of them after. Um, and they'd always be full of chat with you. Like, do you know what I mean? But uh, they just said, no, school just wasn't for you.
0: <laughs> they knew you had great potential. You just hadn't discovered it.
1: That's it, exactly. And to be honest, like even all through my my football career, I would have had great potential, but I just I was never committed. I was never committed to any of it. Like So what changed? Um, I think Alana changed me, to be honest. Having a daughter with special needs that was completely dependent on on you, that that's gonna change it, completely change it. Like Alana was five of twins. Um, her sister was stillborn. They were emergency section at thirty one weeks gestation. 4th of December 2009, I was standing outside uh, Hollistree Hospital and I had one daughter in ICU and one daughter in the morgue. And I couldn't go in to see any of them because I had to wait, you know. Um, Alana was in hospital then for two months after that. And when we brought her, we went in to bring her home and we were told that uh, she had cysts on her brain. So it was suspected cerebral palsy, but we would have had to get brain scans, MRIs, stuff like that done to verify how bad how bad it was. And it was really just going to be um once she starts hitting milestones um of really how bad the cerebral palsy was. And like we were basically told that she wasn't, she couldn't walk, she couldn't talk, she was peg fed, you know, so she was completely dependent on on us, <clears throat> um, that's a scary thought, you know. You can have a child and, and they can grow up, and you know, they come to a certain age where they're dependent, they can do stuff themselves. You know, you tell them to go out to the car and they get in and strap themselves in, but Lana wasn't like that. You know, she's she didn't sleep for four years, um, she'd sleep for an hour at a time and then she'd wake up and she'd be you know, she was very agitated, very frustrated. So, we we would have had to fundraise then to raise money for our house. So we had to raise the guts of, like, €100,000 to to make our house wheelchair accessible. And um, so that's basically where our fundraising started. And it's, like, again, it's a daunting thought. Like, you're looking at €100,000. So it was a matter of just breaking all this down into small pieces. So basically what, what i done with the race the other day, you know, I do with most things in life, you break it down to small pieces, small sections. So, like, you're looking at, like, hundred people was a thousand euro and then you break it down even further to how many people per hundred euro you know and and that's what we had to do at the end of the day so it, we got you know we got that done we got the extension done and we just wanted to get back then to, to somebody else so we we decided to i decided to start running with alana because we, we had a lot of running events that was done for us through fundraising and there was one I went out to then, I seen uh, someone with a running chair. And, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was sort of like something then it sort of clicked to me and going, this is what I need to do. So we decided to do Dublin City Marathon in 2017 and to raise money for a wheelchair accessible bus for the Meadows Respite Care Home in Navan. So Alan attended there. So that's, that's, that's how we basically started running then. We'd done a few park runs. Originally, I had to tilt our chair back our day-to-day chair just tilted back on two wheels and done the 5k park run from then on it just excelled you know um
0: could you see the change in Alana from her being stimulated by the running and the fun with dad and and the people who were so supportive of her and of you as as you took on this journey
1: yeah it was a massive change you know because like I used to I used to go out walking at all hours at night with her because she wasn't settled, I just throw her in the put her in the chair and go out walking with her and she she'd doze off, you know. And I think it was all like the different sounds of birds and trees and cars and stuff like that. And yeah, she, she became a lot better. She got sleep and and so she was a bit calmer then. So once we were out running, I'd go out with her on a Sunday morning. So we'd go up to the Phoenix Park and, and we'd go run around there. We'd be up early, like like we'd uh, I'd get up, I'd have to get her out of bed about 5 in the morning, but I used to go into her and I'd grab her by the legs and drag her to the end of the bed, you know, and I'd be like, come on, Alana, we're going running. And a big smile would come across her face. Um, It's something that really, really I miss now, like really do. But yeah, so we'd have to get her up and stick her on a feed. And, you know, so she'd have to be on a feed an hour before we started running, otherwise she'd start vomiting and stuff like that. Um, But once we got down there, uh, uh, we eventually got a a, a three-wheeler running chair I'd swap her chair into that, and we'd we'd go around we'd do a couple of hours, three hours, four hours around the phoenix park, and uh she just she had a ball like she just loved it, you know, and like everyone knew who she was, and they'd be shouting her name and calling her and um it was brilliant, you know, like they didn't know me, but they do knew Alana, and this was this was the the pivotal point for me is that this is what it was all about was was for her getting her out there raising awareness for kids with special needs. I suppose integrating her into the community as well. And like, you know, she got unbelievable reception, unbelievable reception. And there was other, there was other people there doing it with, with other kids with disabilities and they were the same. You know, you never get bad press. You never got bad words over social media or anything like that. You know, it was all positive. And like she touched so many people. You know, she touched the hearts of a nation, as you said in your, in your post. Like, and she, um, she never said a single word. You know, all she did was just, she smiled.
0: And how did she communicate with you then, Keith, if she was non-verbal?
1: Oh, she, she had her ways. <laughs> she, <yeah. laughs> she'd be, ah, she'd scream and shout and she'd laugh and, you know, she had all the sounds and she just couldn't talk. But yeah, like, jeez, if she, if she, if you were doing something that she didn't like, she'd let you know, don't worry about that. If she was calm, she'd fall asleep or she'd just, she'd just sit there. She wouldn't have had great vision. But her her sense, her hearing sense would have been more heightened. Um, so she'd always like have the head down and she'd be listening to everything, absolutely everything, you know. And if we if we said like there was say if we were talking about someone that we were going, oh that fellas the fucking easier or whatever, she she'd actually turn around and not like them then. You know, it was strange, like she just took all that in and I was unbelievable. Like, she was, she was gas, gas character.
0: You mentioned there that she did capture, both of you did capture and captivated um, the hearts of everybody, really, not just the running community, but everybody that knew about Alana and about Keith and, and the Dublin Marathon in, in 2017. Yeah. So talk to me about what it was like standing on the start line in the mix with the other wheelchair athletes and the elite athletes as well, because you did start with the elites.
1: So we 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 start in front of the elites again, so the wheelchair athletes all go off first, then the elites, and then everybody else after that. You know, in, in training, you sort of try to visualize what it's going to be like standing on the start line, finishing, all that sort of thing. You try to get the emotion. And even now I do that in races that I, that I train for. Doing that, you, you get that, you do, you get that well enough up emotion. Now, I wouldn't be a very emotional person. Like even finishing races, I don't get emotional or anything. I get that in training you know, you get that feeling, you, you get that build up of emotion. Um, but it was just nothing prepared me for that. Like, it was just so surreal to be there. We trained for a year for that. I gave up smoking. I stopped drinking to, to do this. Like, you know, so it was, it was always going to be something that I put 100% into this. And we, I was going to make it as special as I could for her. Um, so like, we would have started, started off with the all the wheelchair athletes and, like, oh, it's incredible. Dublin City Marathon is incredible. Now, I haven't ran marathons in any other countries or anything like that, but, like, it's wall-to-wall people screaming, absolutely screaming at you, you know, and you have your name on your T-shirt. So everyone's shouting your name, and you're like, do I know them? <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, like we were, Jesus, we were cruising, like, it's, it was just so surreal to get to the halfway point, you know, and then, um, I seen me, I seen my family on the, on the left-hand side, and they were shouting at me, and, um, I had a guard on a bike with us, and he was absolutely brilliant, you know, because you couldn't go to water stations with the chair and stuff like that, so he was like, it was a warm day as well, so he said, look, if you run out of water, I'll cycle on ahead, I'll fill it for you, and I come back, and I was like, oh, I couldn't get you to do that for me, like, so I got to about halfway and I was like, no water. I was like, any chance you going go and fill that for me? <laughs> He was great. He was absolutely brilliant. You know, um, he would be telling me what's ahead, where we're turning, because it was my first time doing it as well. I know Dublin, but I didn't really know what route the to marathon took. But once we sort of came by these, uh, UCD, UCD yeah. and yeah, and uh Took the turn over the over the bridge and started heading towards the finish. Um, he sort of drifted off to the side and he was just like, You're on your own now, <laughs> you know. But um, he was he was absolutely brilliant. But the last two, three K run in, like you're talking five, six people deep, screaming, absolutely screaming. It's just electric. That when we got to the finish line, I stopped on the finish line and I gave Alana a kiss. And I just wanted it for how far she had brought me in my life. Um, it was really to acknowledge her for that, you know, um, for for the amazing experience. And to, I suppose, you know, just to experience all the training, go through all it. because for years before that, I'd say, oh, I'd love to run a marathon, but I never bothered. Now I had a purpose and Alana was my purpose to do it, you know, and that's what, that's what we went and done.
0: And is Alana still your purpose?
1: Of course. Alana is always going to be my purpose for doing things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Alana died quite suddenly and unexpectedly just a few weeks after Dublin.
1: Yeah. So we want to move back into our house on the 1st of December in uh, 2017, uh, just after getting it renovated. Alana's birthday was on the 4th of December in 2017. And then on the 12th of December, I put Alana to bed and I got into bed beside her. And about two o'clock in the morning I got out of the bed and I went up to my own bed and I said i uh, if I she woke up I'd go back down to her and I was never heard and got up and I was heading out to work. I said I'd check on, I went in and I found her dead in the bed. Not not you know, not a not a sight I'd I'd wish on anybody, to be honest, you know. Um it was something that sort of haunted me for a long, long time. Um the vision of seeing a land of there like that. So I would have, uh, I suppose, I probably would have went into sort of a, a state of shock for, for a while, um, for about four months after, I I would have been drinking heavy and stuff like that. And I suppose wishing that not to wake up the next day would have been a large part of that. Like, it's a scary thought now um, at the point because you're so young, you had so much life to live, but... Just after Alana dying, seeing that you didn't, you just didn't want to live anymore, you know, um, and that that really, I really had to change that. I had to change how I thought, um, because all all I saw was was that vision of seeing Alana there like that. The whole process of um, her being laid out in the house, the funeral, all stuff like that starts to come forward a bit later on after that. Um, and it's trying not to let that get in on you that you end up a state of depression. Like, at the end of the day, you're probably living every parent's worst nightmare. No one would blame you for going into a state of depression. No one would blame you for falling off the edge. But as far as I was concerned, that, that was not me. That's not what I wanted. So it came down to a choice for me. And I had to change how I taught. I had to bring all the good things that we had done together um, all the memories that I had created with her, I had to bring forward for myself to give me clarity on what we had done. Like the outpour of emotion from people all over the country, the messages we were getting from people all over the country, like was absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Like I, I couldn't have asked for, for any more, like, you know, and it just shows Say what people thought of her and and us, I suppose. And you know, it was just it was it was a great source of comfort from from everybody, like running community, my own club now, and they see were absolutely amazing. Um, but the wider the wider community was just it was just incredible, incredible what we what we got. Like,
0: how did you find the will to come out of that dark hole and to? take the chance at life again to kind of take a second um, chance at life for yourself?
1: Yeah, I think it was more the thing like I didn't want to be, I suppose, you, you'd probably call it a statistic, um, as in like a grieving parent that sort of went on the beer and found whatever at the end of a bottle or went into depression. I didn't want that and I didn't want pity. Um, I, don't, I don't do that sort of thing. And I suppose I used Alana's passing as a fuel for myself to progress in something that we were so passionate about. Like Alana created that sort of spark in me to do that. And I think the more we went on, it sort of turned into a furnace. And it's now, it's nothing can put that out now. Like, you know, that's there and it's there to stay. And like, I'll always do it for Alana's memory, but I'll also do it to help other people other kids that either have disabilities or, or as we've done for the other day, we've done for Nahan, he's, um, he has cancer. And to be honest with you, like, it's, it's really, for me, it's, you know, we got so much help off people that didn't even know us. You know, I know what that feels like. So for me to do, it's only a gesture of, like, I'm here to help as much as you want me to. I, I'll try, do you know what I mean? I'm not saying I'll do... I can do everything I can't but I will try and get you out there I'll try and raise as much as I can for you and you just you just live in hope then that other people will do the same thing which which they do like.
0: And do you think has running and taking on these big challenges given you a greater sense of purpose?
1: Well look to be honest like being associated and being in running basically saved my life you know and that's that's not, ta- that's not saying that lightly. It has like, you know, because I think like when I started doing ultra running, um, I spent an awful lot of time out running on my own and, you know, you go through moments of like, you know, all them memories would start coming back and, you know, you'd get, you get tears and all that. Once you sort of get that out of your system, you know, then you can get into it, Right. I'm here to train. You know what I mean? I'm here to put in miles. And I think that that sort of worked out well for me like that. You know, I was able to do that. I was able to get it out. It wasn't like I was holding it in. I wasn't suppressing it. I Like once I went out, I don't talk about my feelings. Um, I'd be very closed. The only time I'd ever really, you know, I'd go out to the, Alana's grave now on, on a, say, a weekend or whatever. And I'd just chat to her like, you know, as if she was there in front of me. And, you know, you treat treated like that. And, you know, like... I suppose any any time I'm struggling, I'd always just remember when I was struggling in a race with Alana, like I'd be cursing at myself and she'd be laughing. So <laughs> you just sort of hear that around in your head, you know, and that sort of gives me a laugh and, and gives you that bit of a bit of a lift to, to move on, you know. After sort of that period in my life that I decided, right, this is this needs to end and I need to sort of pick up where we left off, you know. And sort of keep her legacy going now we I decided that I was going to aim to do the Dublin City Marathon again in 2018 um so in in doing that then we it was told that we was we got to we were going to be awarded the Lord Mayor's Medal which is awarded to any runner that's doing the marathon for for some reason uh, like that you know and um so I knew that would that was going to be presented to me before the marathon and when I went up there um Jim Ogney, the race director, was there, and he also had. Uh, I don't know if you see it there above me. Um, it was uh, Alana's number, so he basically retired Alana's number from Dublin City Marathon, which is like I was just that just got me there. And then, like you know, I'm getting
0: goosebumps yeah, listening was, to you. So, so basically, no one will ever run the Dublin Marathon wearing number one four one again. No,
1: no, no one ever. No, and you know the thing about this was that. Alana ran it once. She didn't run it 10 times or 20 times. She ran it once. So it just shows the magnitude of what she had done. Like, Do you know what I mean? And how much she was taught of within the, the whole running community. Like, Alana is still, at present, the youngest ever participant and finisher of the Dublin City Marathon. You know, which is uh, unbelievable, actually, to still have. Like.
0: And an amazing legacy for her to have as well um, and to always be remembered it's absolutely amazing I really am getting goosebumps um just thinking about it how did you go and run the marathon after Jim telling you that
1: with great difficulty I had I had originally said that I wasn't going to I was never going to break our time together so um we ran 321.47 and I said that I was I was never going to break our time in Dublin City Marathon because it was going to be a special event for us. And you know, I was talking to I was talking to uh, one of the girls I know just a couple of weeks prior to it, and I was just telling her this is what I was doing, and she was like, "Why would you do that? You've never done anything like that before. You know, you always went out and you ran your best, and and you gave it everything. So why why would you do that now? You know, and I thought like, you know, you're right. I'm not I'm not that type of person that's just gonna I'm just show up. I'm there to, to race no matter the situation um, and do my best. As I said, like, you know, that's winning is doing your best. So, yeah, I think I, I went out and ran 3.15 that day, but it was very, like, that was a very, very emotional day for me. Um, it was just like, you know, all your energy is nearly gone with the emotion at the start, let alone having to go and run, run a marathon. But, you know, Dublin City Marathon will always be a massive, massive part of me. It's something that I'll always do. Um and it's I'll always have fond memories of it.
0: How did you step up then from Dublin Marathon into the ultra running? Like what was the next what was the next step?
1: Um the next step was I wanted to, I suppose I wanted to challenge myself. You know, I wanted to basically see what I could do. Um like training for the marathon was something like the, probably the first time in my life I've ever put a hundred percent into something. Um and I loved every bit of it, training, training to the race. I loved every bit of it. So, um, I seen, I seen this one from Dublin to Belfast. I just liked the idea of going from either South to North or Dublin, one city to another, you know, that sort of thing. And 172 kilometers. And I suppose it was another thing to, to, I suppose to focus on. It was, it was going to be a lot of training, which I loved. And it was going to be a lot of time out uh, of running. It was going to be a structured training i didn't have a coach at this time um i sort of just structured the training myself and um yeah i i like it was just i was talking to a guy ray caston and he said look just just get used to running double days and running on tired legs that sort of thing so i sort of built up from like 30k one day to 20k another 40k 30 and went that way up until i done a marathon on a saturday morning a race I went out that night and done a marathon and then Sunday morning. So within the space of 24 hours, I'd done three marathon distances. I knew going to, to Dublin that I would have been, I, would, I was in good shape for it. Still didn't know like how I'd go. You know, you could run at a pace and come halfway, you're just shattered and blow up. Um. So I think I sort of, I sort of said, right, I'm going to run, I think it was about 6.30 or 6. 6.30 or something like that per kilometer, um, get to halfway, see how I get on and, uh, the aim was pretty much under twenty hours. That was the aim. It was a big ask as well at the time. So that was that was another great experience I had. Uh, friends of mine just uh, crewing for me and stuff like that, you know. And it was just it was just amazing. Like so, it was I think it was eighteen hours and twenty minutes, and I finished third. Like, but it's one of these things. Like I went up before the race. I'm I'm very good at preparing for races. Like I'd arrive at a race at a start line about three hours before the race actually starts. <laughs> so I'm one of these. Um, I'd have everything ready the night before. I'm just like, I'd have everything wrote down. Like, so doing Dublin to Belfast, I pretty much knew every turn I was taking and I went and ran the last 10 K. So just as you're coming into Belfast, I ran that all the way up to the finish line. So I knew what that was going to feel like. Um, or when I got to that point, I knew where I was and how long it was going to take me. (laughs) So yeah, but like doing things like this, like you expect, like, people are going, so how many people are at the finish line? You're going, well, there was probably five. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, you don't do these things for people to be standing there cheering you in. You do these things for for yourself. You know, that like, I've done all this training and this is what it's got me. I think doing that and doing so well is nearly like step, step it up another gear and see see what else is out there. Like like you've just entered the world of ultra running now. Do you know what I mean? And you look at, I suppose, on social media, you follow you follow people like that. So you feel like, to be honest with you, you don't feel like you're doing enough. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, okay, so how can I sort of step it up another gear? Um, so I end up doing the Energy of twenty four um, again, new race to me, hadn't a clue where, what pace was doing, where I was going. It was just a matter of go out and run it. Um, food, food wise, I was absolutely brutal at this stage. It was just. It was a mess, like, um, but, like, I, I covered 209 kilometres in that one, and I was shattered. Like, I could, I could barely, it was run a lap, walk a lap is what I, I what I came down to. I was delighted for that one to finish, <laughs> 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 to be honest.
0: <laughs> so but, how do you protect your body? How do you mind your knees, your hips, your body generally, and recover from something like the backyard? ultra because you seem like you're fairly lively here now today for the the (laughs) conversation that we're having you know you wouldn't think that you did that just a couple of weeks ago but are you back running since the the last one standing event
1: well before before the backyard ultra um i had to stop running for two weeks because i had a an issue with a tendon to my knee just under my kneecap so a friend of mine's a physio and like for the last four years he's been looking after me and he's absolutely incredible um, so he actually crewed for me as well in the backyard ultra. But um, yeah, I had an issue with a tendon in my knee. Anytime I went out running, my knee swelled up. So two weeks before, I just had to stop running and pray to God that I wasn't going to have a reaction in the race. And uh, Thank God I didn't. Um, so everything went smooth in that way. And I think I went back running on last Monday. I think it was like a week, not even a week after. I went out for 10K around the block. I mean, he was sore again. So <laughs> I have to just ease up. I'm sitting in bats of ice now every evening just to try and, um, I've sort of still got a bit of inflammation in, in my legs from the race. So you're just doing bats of ice just to try and get that inflammation down and try and recover. But I'm like, I'm fairly good at recovering because as I said, like my food is very, very good. Like I always eat well dinner wise, breakfast wise, but I've sort of increased like veg and, and, and fruit and stuff like that in my diet. Um, my recovery's always been been really, really good, and I suppose it, with the food that you eat, protein, chicken, turkey, all that sort of thing, that all sort of helps with that and the things like.
0: And do you live anywhere near the sea that you could be throwing yourself into the water every day for recovery instead of the ice baths?
1: I live about half an hour from Betty's Town, so I could be going out <laughs> you've, there. You
0: have no excuse.
1: I'm not a fan of the sand. But, but I signed up for Marathon to Sab. That's the problem. <laughs> I was just about to say, are you not gonna to
0: have to get used to the sand?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna to have to just bring home buckets of sand and roll around in it for a few days because or, or go, swim- go,
0: go swimming on a sandy beach, and your car will be um covered in uh, in sand and your bags and everywhere, no matter where you walk in your house, it's covered in sand, even the bed yeah. has sand in it. Go away. Yeah, oh, it's no way. Yeah, no, i, hack that. I <laughs> hack that. Um, I was going to <laughs> ask you how many pairs of runners? Do you go through in a year? Have you ever worked it
1: out? I don't even know how many miles I get out of a pair of runners, and that's what shocks me is that people actually know how many miles they got out of a pair of runners. I have no idea. I have four pairs of runners that I sort of swap between, so I I, I have no idea to be honest. Like I, I only in the in the backyard ultra, I had two pairs of runners that I was swapping. I would swap every six or seven hours. I'd swap them um, just for comfort more so, and I changed my socks as well. But what happened was I um, I strained my Achilles. So you sort of had to jump across it. Well, you didn't have to jump across the stones. I jumped across the stones. And I landed on a little tuft of grass. And my heel dropped. And I felt a pull on my Achilles. So I got around. And uh, as I said, my friends, McGowan uh, was a physio. And he strapped my he strapped my Achilles up. But he also taped my sock to my leg. So I couldn't take my socks off after that. you know, with the tape. So I had to leave them on. But uh, that was about, I think I still had about 15 hours left.
0: (laughs) And um, you know the way you said, oh, I'll get to 48 hours and then we'll see what happens. I mean, you nearly went 20 hours beyond that, 15 hours um, beyond that. How did you manage your body, your mind, your sleep, your nutrition, For those last hours, because really that was going into a complete unknown.
1: It was, to be honest with you. And like, um, I suppose I hit, I hit about 49, 50 hours. I was on, I was in the middle of a lap at this time. And I was like, I'm shattered. I'm absolutely shattered. Like um, if I time out, you know, there was no way I wasn't going to start. But if I time out, that was acceptable. Or if I lay on the grass here for a few minutes, that'd be fine. You know, Dustin said, these things go through your head and you have to be aware of that to to rein it in and go, no, this is what I'm doing. I'm not one to to stop. There's no excuse good enough for me to stop in a race. I done the Seven Sisters skyline there last year and it's 50K, 52K, 4,000 meters ascent. Like I lay in streams of water. I lay on the ground praying for the race to be over. And I just kept getting up and moving on, because I could not think of it, an excuse big enough for me to stop that I'd be happy with the next day, sitting there going, "No, that that was okay." So this race was the same. So the only way that I was going to stop was if I keeled over. Um, and now I know people can see that's a bit extreme, but when you have that ultra mindset, or you have that mindset of like, "There's no, there's nothing, there's no reason good enough for me to stop." You know, and I, I just can't justify it to myself. Like, I went through everything. Like, you know, the way you scan your body and you're going, oh, maybe I've oh, there's my hamstring going. I think I'll pull up on that. But it just, I didn't have it. I didn't have it in me that I would have been, you know, sitting, sitting there that night or sitting there the next day going, no, that was the right decision. It, it just wasn't across my mind. So my strategy was every hour, show up at the starting, no matter what. And I never, I never wanted to not go to the start line, if that makes sense. So, like, that was on the 50 hours. I came in, I was absolutely shattered, and my brother had a bit of a bed ready. So I lay down there, and I went unconscious for about eight minutes. And he woke me up, and I jumped, and uh, we got up, and he had a bit of uh, cup of tea and a bit of something to eat, and I had that, and then just walked down the start line, joking and laughing.
0: So there was four of you for the last twenty hours. Yeah. Were you willing them in a way to kind of, would they ever just drop out so I can, can win this thing? Or was there a good sense of camaraderie? Or did it even cross your mind that like you wanted them to stop so you could stop?
1: No, no there, was never, there was never a point of like I wanted them to stop for, for the race to be over. No, like obviously I wanted to go as far as I could and push myself as far as I can. Uh, and they wanted to do the same. You know, like Amy... Like, she pushed, pushed herself to to the point of exhaustion. You know, she went to hell and back and back again. Do you know what I mean? Like, we all put our bodies under so much pressure. So what I was feeling on my body, the other three were feeling the exact same. So it came down to either who wanted it more, whose mindset was stronger, or who prepared better, or who was feeling themselves better and resting better. That's effectively what it was going to come down to. So if you didn't fuel enough earlier on or if you didn't sleep enough earlier on, that was going to come back to haunt you at this point in time. If your mindset wasn't there, that you were willing, say, other people to drop out, you know, so you're waiting on somebody else for your mindset to change is not going to be strong enough for you to stay there. Do you know? So you have all these aspects of, so you control what you can control. So I could control myself. I could control my own race or how I think about my race. You know, you you can, you can use all these mantras. Like I was talking to a fella and he was telling me that he was reading the David Goggins book and stuff wrote on his arm. And like, I've listened to that three times in my first ultra. And if you're going to listen to things like this, you need them to relate to you. You can't take somebody else's, you know, somebody else's stuff or some, you can, but you have to relate it to you in your sense. So I like, I got a good one that related to me and something that I wanted. And, you know, so mine one was dreams are painful. When the pain stops, the dream is over. So basically you want that it's going to hurt. But once you stop, you know, yourself in a race, you're hurting. Once you stop, that hurt is gone. But also what you are fighting for is also gone. I've said that so many times to myself through that race. And I think the hardest part is, right you get to 20 or 30 hours in a race like that and you can recite this to yourself and it's working. When you get to 50 hours in a race and you can't even remember what that was, you know you're going into the darkest part of your mind and your body that if that works and pulls you out, you come out the far side, you have totally different clarity on your mind, the race, everything that you've thought was wrong in life comes there and it's like this you know it's like this beam of light in front of you and I got to the point where I can keep going no matter what I've suffered so much emotional trauma with the death of Alana in my life no amount of pain physically mentally in a race is going to come close to what I felt at that point in time that point in time of wanting to not wake up the next day no amount of pain or, or mental fatigue is ever going to come close to that. So once you can come out of the darkest hours in a race and come out the far side, you are then effectively unbreakable. And I, I think four of us that were there went through that and back again. And we all had that, but some were hurting more than others. And as I said, Amy, Amy dropped because she ran her point to to the point of exhaustion. That's how far she went and how much she wanted to to win.
0: It was incredible um, to see the updates coming through of the the changes as they happened um, towards the end. What was it like getting up for the last lap?
1: Um, Well, so the last lap was like myself and Jeevy. Amy dropped out at 59, Peter dropped out at 61 and myself and Jeevy went out at 62. GV went about 500 meters and he said, I'm done. But I still had to say, get around the lap. And, you know, I still wasn't sure if he was done or not done. He could have walked up the road and then start running again. So there's so many mind games in a race like this. You need to be so careful what people are saying to you and what, you know, to get you to sort of relax. And once you relax, you know, you're nearly finished at that stage. Um, so I went on and then a, a fella came up to me and he said, yeah, he said two things, GV's gone. And he said, um, get around the lap in the, in the time and enjoy it, you know, and that's what I did. I met a friend, a friend of mine who was down the far end of the, in the forest and he was just screaming and shouting at me, like, <laughs> and he was swinging out at me and I was like, will you let go of me? Because I still have to get around in the same time so or under the hour. You know, as I said, like, I'm not an emotional person and like coming up to that finish line, my brother was there, my brother was coming for me and the first time I've hugged my brother in years, um, I called him over and just gave him a hug and I, just to thank him for say what he's done for me over the last few days and um, like I said, I got to the finish line, there was three or four people at the finish line. There wasn't this big parade or banners or anything, you know, it was just, you walk past the finish line like I did every other hour Um, the lads handed me my trophy and medals and or my coins and stuff like that. And and We took a few pictures and, and it was a way home. Do you know what I mean? So like, as I said, these races aren't done for crowds and crowds of people at a finish line. These races are done for yourself. There's no way, you know, even Peter and Amy and G V you put your body through all that for, for, for anyone else. You just can't possibly do it. Everything that you put your body through there is for yourself and what you believe in and what, as I said, whatever mantras you use as long as they relate to you and your personal goals and achievements then they will work
0: and i think that's very sound advice as well keith because often we can be waylaid by mantras that are suitable yeah. to other people but if we don't bring them back and bring them to what means something to us individually as we carry on then they're kind of a bit of a waste
1: like i i've listened to david Goggins, i've listened to aunt middleton books you know they're, they're unbelievable for what they've done in their life what they've suffered in their life do you know what i mean everybody everybody goes through life with adversity it's how you react to it the choices that you choose what you want to do at that point in time what you can control and how you're going to control it so it's all comes down to choice you know the biggest problems can be broken down to the smallest parts to work through them no matter what you do no matter what happens in your life as i said like I live every parent's worst nightmare. I don't feel I have the worst life in the world. I don't feel that people should take pity on me. You know, there's people going through far worse things than I've ever gone through. I don't think there's any portions of life that you can't break down to smaller pieces that you can sort of work through and control what you can control. There's some things way outside your control. It's just you choose how you deal with it.
0: Next big challenge then is in Tennessee in October, uh, the yes. World Championships.
1: Yes, yes,
0: yes, Are you excited?
1: I am indeed. You know, because going into, going into the Backyard Ultra in Florida Manor, it was a thing of like, I don't know where's my breaking point. I don't know how far I can push myself. And now I still don't know my breaking point. And I still don't know how far I can push myself. I know I'm prepared to go all the way. Look, you could say an element of luck. I didn't pick up an injury um, and stuff like that. But I think training-wise preparation, training-wise fuel, uh, nutrition, my training alone, you know, how I train, um, that all plays a part in bringing them things that can happen out of your control down to minute things. When you race ultra, there's so many things that can go wrong, so, so many, Um, but I think if you prepare right, you limit them chances of things happening. Going to Tennessee, if I went for 24 hours or 48 hours, I'd be going right. I Like I had a chat with my coach though, with Marcus there the other day. And we were, saying, were sort of talking about it, like going, what are we? What's our aim? What's our goal? Um, we both said, like, we went for 24 or 48 hours in Florida Manor, you know, you're talking probably middle of the field. In fact, we went for 63 hours. I'm in the top 10 in the world at that race, that event. Um, I think it's sixth. I'm not sure. Um, so you have to be going with a positive mindset of, of being there till the end. I follow all these people on Instagram that are going to be there. Courtney DeWalter, Maggie All you know, some fantastic runners like that are well-known worldwide. Um, you get a chance to, to start up or line up against these people. um, why not be there? What have they got that I don't have? Do you know what I mean? What's, what gives them the edge over me? Do you know, so as far as I'm concerned, they don't have an edge over me. You know, if for nothing else, I have an edge over them with the life experiences that I have. So that's the mindset that I'm going with. <laughs>
0: that's a good
1: one to go
0: with. When you're not running and you're not working and you're not just being Keith, what do you do to make you happy? I run. Aside from running.
1: What do you do what to chill is, out? I don't know. I don't really have much downtime. Like I like I have my I my son, I have my son, I suppose, every Saturday and we go off cycling on bikes and stuff like that. Um just do normal stuff with him. Other than that, like I'd be either recovering or I'd be out running at night or I'd be walking. or like it's a like running is like a full time job. So it's like a it's like two full time jobs, you know. Um Hopefully someone will pay me for it someday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how how, how, do, how do you find the balance?
1: Um, Again, it comes down to choice. It comes down to, so I'll walk my training around. Like my work would really be, I go in early for work. So I go in for seven o'clock and I try and get finished for half, four or five. So I go training after that in the evenings. Um, Weekends, weekends would either be, I I walk my weekend running around having, having Harry. So be, it could be out Friday night. Um, and then I could have him Saturday and I could be back out again Saturday night. So I could do it's full, nearly 48 hours a week. Um, so again, that's good training. So if nothing else, and then try and recover then on Sunday or recover Sunday evening. or Yeah, you just sort of work around it all. Um, like, look, something I'm passionate about. If you want it to work, you'll make it work.
0: And I think we should finish on that note. Um, I've just remembered, though, however, that we did get some questions in and I haven't asked them. And we are almost an hour into the show. So two questions. And, and I know the answer to the first one. Stephen Lane asks, what is your why? I really <laughs> know what your why is. And the way you're looking at me and nodding at me, Stephen Lane is obviously a friend of yours.
1: Exactly. Yeah. He texts me that every Friday. It's a running joke. He texts me out every Friday. What is it? What
0: Just so you can eat more. <laughs> <laughs> and then Owen Quain said, Keith, you're a legend. How do you deal with injuries and setbacks while training?
1: Oh, OK. So I had a setback there at the end of last year. I had a tendon in my shin. So what I did was I jumped on the rower and I set myself a target in six weeks to row 50k. So that's what i done. See, this is what happens. I can't just do something simple and just do a, a normal row and training block. I have to set myself a target. So I was talking to Marcus again, and I said, look, I can't run, so I'm going to row. So he says, uh, so what's your goal? I was like, I don't know. What do you think? He goes, "So you row a marathon? I was like, so why not 50K? So it was 50K. And then I started thinking – what, what, might be able to do 100k or what about rolling for 24 hours so we haven't gone that far just yet but yeah six weeks I done a a block and I rolled 50k in three hours and 40 minutes and then my arse was killing me <laughs> I'm so sore so sore not joking I had to sit I had to sit in a cushion with two towels underneath me because my arse was that sore <laughs> I'm definitely not rolling for 100k <laughs>
0: <laughs> which would you rather run for 63 hours oh, or roll for 100
1: ki will run all day long I will not I, I couldn't walk for a day after my arse was up my glutes I, just went locked up
0: I think that should be a sound bite for promoting the podcast
1: thought <laughs> <laughs> oh, my arse was so sore <laughs> don't forget um, to put Rowan in there <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
0: Keith, it's been fabulous talking to you. Thank you for telling us your story and for opening your, your heart to our listeners. I think they'll get an awful lot out of your story and continue to run and to do such great work in Alana's memory and honour. And just want to wish you the very best of luck with Tennessee and don't be a stranger to the show. I'm sure no, I will no. see you on the start line of Dublin Marathon at some point and definitely the finish line. But yeah, that was, uh, that was super. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thanks very much for asking me on and for sharing my story. As I said, like it's, I love talking about it and I talk about it all day long and if people want to listen to it, I'll keep telling it. You know, um. So I appreciate appreciate you asking me and of course, I'll, uh, I'll definitely keep in touch.
0: Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget you can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. That's try with an I, not a Y. I'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Pop by, say hi, let me know what you think of the show. And if you are new to our podcast, please do check out some of our previous episodes. You will be impressed and inspired by our guests. Until next time, stay safe, keep smiling and remember to look for fun and adventure in every day.